You're listening to The Revealer Podcast, where we explore how religion shapes our culture and our communities. Produced by the Center for Religion and Media at NYU and hosted by me, Dr. Brett Crutch. Each month, we sit down with experts to discuss the role religion plays in politics, in people's lives, and throughout our world. In today's show, we're exploring The Revealer's Catholic Horror series, which compares horror films and novels to actual horrors committed by the Catholic Church. Why has Catholicism been such a popular source of inspiration for horror movies and literature? What can the genre of horror reveal about real life? And how does examining horror help us make sense of things like the clergy abuse crisis and other atrocities committed by religious communities? Hi, everyone. Welcome to The Revealer Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Brett Crutch. We're talking about Catholic horror today. And to do that, I'm very excited to be joined by three experts of American Catholicism, Dr. Jack Downey, Dr. Matthew Kressler, and Dr. Kathleen Holscher. Each wrote an article for The Revealer's three-part series on Catholic horrors that compares horror films and novels to actual horrors committed by the Catholic Church, its institutions, and its leaders. You can find the three articles in The Revealer's Catholic Horror series in the April, May, and June 2022 issues of The Revealer at therevealer.org. Hi, Jack, Matthew, and Katie. I'm very excited to chat with you about your great series on Catholic horror. I will admit, and there may be other listeners like this, that I'm personally not a big consumer of horror, but your articles really helped me appreciate what horror can illuminate about society, and especially in this case, people's ideas about Catholicism. So Matthew, let me start with you and ask you two questions that might be related and I think good for listeners who, like me, haven't given much thought to horror and religion. So first, what gave you the idea for this series to compare horror films and novels to actual horrors committed by the Catholic Church? And connected to that, why has Catholicism been so prominent in American horror stories? Sure thing. Uh, thanks, Brett. And we, we can make a horror fan out of you someday. <laughs> we'll get you. It's just the right the right novel or comic book. For me, it was it was a kind of convergence of two interests. So on the one hand, I'm a lifelong fan of genre storytelling, as they call it. You know, fantasy, science fiction, horror, which is a way of saying I'm a lifelong nerd. On the other hand, I'm a scholar of religion and race whose scholarship has been focusing increasingly on kind of specifically religion and histories of violence. And so for me, the idea for a series kind of putting Catholic horror genre in conversation with Catholic historical horrors Mm -hmm. um, came about watching and reading horror through the lens of my scholarship and vice versa. So, you know, when when you're studying the history of white supremacy, you know, if you're studying enslavement, segregation, if you're studying clerical sexual abuse, you can't not see these things as horrors. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you're watching horror or reading horror as a genre, it's intentionally centering those things that we don't want to face, that we, you know, can't unsee. And so the idea for me really came from watching and reading horror through the eyes of the scholarship that I was engaging. And some of that scholarship uh, was the scholarship of Katie and Jack, who are contributors and, and on this pod. You know, I had this 
kind of idea. And then as soon as I pitched this idea to Katie and Jack, they immediately started thinking of other films and other books and mm. other essays. As far as why has Catholicism been so prominent in American horror stories, I'm going to mostly defer to Jack and Katie on this, but my hunch is that it has something to do with the nightmarish place that Catholicism holds historically in the Protestant imagination and mm. also the ways that Catholicism, especially in like the last hundred years, has come to signify the supernatural in popular culture in a particular way. Uh, Katie, is there anything that you, thoughts that you have on why Catholicism has been so prominent in American horror? Sure. I think what Matt just said about Catholicism being sort of tethered to the supernatural in the American imagination, I think that historically in this country, I think the United States likes to think of itself as a place that's kind of guided by reason and science, but mm. is also full of folks who kind of believe in ghosts in the back of their minds. Yeah. Particularly, as Matt said, in the Protestant imagination, Catholicism has kind of held this position as sort of having an open portal to the supernatural for better or worse, right? Mm -hmm. And then the other thing Catholicism is sort of tethered to in the Protestant imagination, I think is death, dead bodies, blood, things like that, right? I mean, Catholics venerate pieces of dead bodies when they venerate the relics of saints and mm. Catholics, you know, have a crucifix with a bloody Jesus hanging on it in, right. in distinction from Protestants and blood and death and the supernatural, they're all the makings of, of good horror movies. Well, great. So, Jack, your article, Catholic Monstrosities, Priests, and Supernatural Dread, inaugurates the series, and it gives us some interesting history of Catholics, Catholicism, and Catholic institutions as the inspiration for horror that predates film. So what can you tell us about some of the earliest forms of Catholic horror in North America? There's a way in which the, the genre of American horror literature, which is predated by European literature, et cetera, is really based around captivity narratives. There's captivity narratives, I mean, probably in a way more preeminently known to be like Native American captivity narratives. Famously, like Last of the Mohegans is, is part of this. You also have this whole genre of literature in the mid-19th century that comes out that is based around the notions of convent captivity narratives. And Starting in 1835, and then again in 1836, you have best-selling novels that purport to be autobiographical, that are based around these ideas of escaped Protestant women who have fled convents where they've been tortured and otherwise kind of held captive. Hmm. And there's something about convents that is really titillating to a Protestant Northeastern audience, right? Hmm. Mm -hmm. Part of this has to do with the fact that there's a kind of proximate other, urban convents either in Boston or Montreal, as these, these stories you know, are based in, are objects of fascination, but also revulsion because they're so close, right? There's this notion that um, Catholics kind of like walk amongst us, you know, mm -hmm. as it were, mm -hmm. um, and just inside the, the walls of the convent, all manner of salacious behaviors is potentially happening, right? Hmm. All sorts of weird sex, violence, you know, abortions, etc. But there's a, a proximity, but also a distance that is really important in figuring how kind of Catholic captivity narratives are constructed as objects of fascination for Protestant audiences. So then I'm curious, as someone who has studied Catholicism extensively, looking back on those stories now that, you know, were quite popular, these novels about abuses and 
crimes that took place within convents and Catholic institutions. Looking back on that now, and of course, with awareness of abuses that have taken place within Catholic institutions, how do you think about those stories today? So I think for, the, for at least most of my education as a, a historian of U.S. Catholicism, there's been this kind of default assumption that this period in the mid-19th century you know, of what we call the immigrant church was teeming with anti-Catholic rhetoric and conspiracy theories, right, which famously boil over into riots, like very conspicuously in 1834 in Charleston, Massachusetts, a riot occurs in which, you know, there, there is this a, a conspiracy theory that women are being held captive in a convent. This also happens in, in Philadelphia. There's a series of, of riots in 1844 and onward. And I think because in our discipline, and maybe Matthew and Katie maybe could add to this or disagree, there has been this affiliation, I think this is true with a lot of disciplines, that a lot of historians of U.S. Catholicism are themselves also American Catholics. And so I think there has been this default setting that we just assume that all of the stuff that comes out, all of these kind of salacious conspiracy theories are just conspiracy theories. A scholar named uh, William Cosson, a couple of years ago, when the, the Pennsylvania Grand Jury Report from 2018 came out, uh, really started to interrogate whether or not the just assumption that everything that's being reported in the mid-19th century is just xenophobic and can tell us nothing more than just about the people who are reporting this as being anti-Catholic and kind of like Protestant supremacist in a way. I think there, there's an outstanding question about whether or not, as Bill says it, that historians have been aiders and abettors of abuse, that we've just assumed that there's nothing there besides anti-Catholicism, whereas now U.S. Catholic historians have really just hopefully turned a corner to acknowledge that abuse within the Catholic Church is a norm rather than an exception, and that we actually need to reread Catholic historiography with that lens. Thank you. So I want to move uh, to you, Matthew, your article, the second in the series, Exorcist Abusers and When Catholic History is Horror, moves us forward in time and focuses on the exorcist. So for those who don't know, what is The Exorcist about and what were reactions like to that film? I feel like any conversation on Catholic horrors like ultimately has to kind of center, at least in part, on The Exorcist because it was it was a sensation um, and its reception was both dramatic and traumatic, depending on the story you're telling. Um, At its most basic, what the story is about is a mother and daughter, actually the mother and daughter's life kind of slowly unravel. uh, And the mother is trying to figure out what is going on with her daughter, who's experiencing all of these intense psychological and physical episodes. It's clear to the audience that she has been possessed by a demon, but like any good horror movie, the people in the film, mm-hmm. um, you know, need to have that proven to them. So ultimately, this story of a kind of daughter's descent into demonic possession, a kind of bodily captivity narrative to kind of tie into what Jack was just saying, yeah. um, becomes the story of an exorcism. Though I think what is really striking about the film uh, is that the actual exorcism, you know, the, the titular exorcist and yeah. exorcism 
only happens at the very end after you've spent this kind of entire film kind of watching the supernatural invade, so to speak, a place that would be associated for audiences as like the pinnacle of kind of modern secularity, which is a, a wealthy actress's home in suburban Washington, D.C. So at the time, like I said, the movie was a sensation. There were lines around city blocks. It you know is kind of heralded for, for that reason and because of how intense the the horror was the gore and and scares were um hmm. it's kind of heralded as like the movie that kind of like set the standard for modern horror there are stories of people passing out people throwing huh. up people having to leave the theater and part of this was due to a viral campaign before there was an internet you know there was a mm-hmm. sense when the film came out already that the making of this film was cursed like literally, huh. like yeah, that, the, yeah. that the set caught fire. Um, there was a sense of authenticity about the supernatural of the film, such that you know certain religious communities kind of campaigned against the film as huh. uh, kind of carrying the mark of the devil. I think for especially you know for Catholic audiences, that mark of authenticity is precisely what made it both such a good horror movie, but also so absolutely terrifying because it was taken to not be fiction, but a kind of fictionalized rendition of reality. The novel by William Peter Blatty was based on a real case of a boy who underwent an exorcism in the Hmm. 40s. So yeah, the the film was a sensation and really kind of became an instant classic in, in the genre. So then I want to hone in on what you focus your article on, and you uh, really focus in particular on the start of the exorcism scene in the movie when two priests are led into the bedroom of a 12-year-old girl, and then they shut the door behind them. And you use that scene to make comparisons to the real-life abuses of children by priests behind closed doors. So can you talk about that comparison and what for you this illuminates about the figure of the Catholic priest, people's common cultural ideas about Catholic clergy and how all of this connects for you to the clergy abuse crisis? Yeah, I think it actually connects very well to what Jack was just saying in that as historians of U.S. Catholicism start considering and reconsidering the breadth of Catholic history in light of what we now know of not just decades of clerical sexual abuse, but also decades of institutional conspiracy and cover-up and kind of networks of enabling that kind of extend throughout the Catholic community. You know, sitting down and watching the film with full knowledge of all of that really forced me to reconsider that scene and what's going on in the film. When I first watched this film when I was young, I immediately took to it. And for me, it it became a favorite of mine for what it said about kind of faith and doubt and the kind of rebirth of faith in the midst of evil. When I rewatched the film just last year with students with whom we were kind of exploring kind of the history of clerical sexual abuse, it became clear to me that the film was actually kind of reinforcing, hmm. you know, almost actually canonizing the same logic that enabled abuser Catholic priests to groom and abuse and cover up violence. So like the the logic of the Catholic priest in The Exorcist, which uh, becomes a kind of trope through horror, Mm -hmm. is that, 
you know, in the face of real supernatural evil, the only person who has the kind of spiritual firepower to combat that evil is a Catholic priest. The logic behind that is the idea that the Catholic priest stands in the place of Christ on earth. And that's precisely the same logic that operated for abuser priests. Rewatching the film recently with my students was one of those moments where I saw the film in a new light and then couldn't unsee that that new view. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that people's general conceptions of Catholic clergy now, I think, uh, in the wake of the ongoing kind of revelations of, of sexual abuse, like common cultural ideas have shifted a little bit. But in genre stories, like in horror, in in literature and film, the priest still often like has this kind of like central heroic role. This time when I rewatched it, I was like, well, how cool would it be if there was actually some story that kind of subverted that? And and I think you're starting to see that a little bit in the past few years. Great. Thank you. So then, Jack, I want to circle back briefly to you while we're talking about this overlap of exorcisms, film, and real life. And your article actually opens with a real-life exorcism that took place after the film The Exorcist premiered, and you describe a murder trial where the accused claimed he was possessed by demons. And then that real-life story is part of the inspiration for the Conjuring movie franchise. So can you tell us briefly what happened that led to that exorcism, how the public reacted to a real-life claim of demon possession as opposed to just watching it in a movie? Movie, and what you make of it coming back into American culture through The Conjuring. Sure. So the, the story that you're uh, referencing is sometimes nicknamed the devil made me do it case. Um, <laughs> this is a 1981, uh, essentially murder trial uh, in which a young man named Arnie Johnson murdered his landlord and claimed that he was possessed by a demon who had essentially jumped from his girlfriend's younger brother into him. Part of this trial, which was, it was international news. The appetite for this story was was really remarkable at the time. Hmm. You know, centered around, in some ways, the dynamic duo, which has become the Conjuring series bedrock couple, uh, Lorraine and Ed Warren. And they were a, a couple who were a, a demonologist, paranormal psychic couple. So... Lorraine was a psychic and Ed was a demonologist, as he, he talks about it. I think one of the things that's interesting about them is that, so they had been investigating this, this case of purported possession prior to the murder. One of the things that I think is, is very interesting about them, one, this story hits a few years after The Exorcist, right? So I think there's a way in which popular culture was already primed to receive this information in a way that was probably different than it would have hit if it was a decade earlier. But also there's something about Ed and Lorraine Warren that is really distinct in, insofar as, and I think maybe this is, has to do with why the, the Conjuring series has legs in contemporary popular culture, which is to say that Ed and Lorraine Warren are not priests, right? Mm-hmm. Unlike The Exorcist and unlike the, the kind of overwhelming majority of Catholic horror yeah. you know, films and television, Ed and Lorraine Warren are like regular people who live in Connecticut. In, in some ways, they're completely unassuming. And if there's an enormous amount of YouTube video available about them. Huh. Um, they seem incredibly regular, except for the fact that 
Lorraine Warren, from a very early age, has been able to perceive supernatural beings and married Ed Warren, who was not a clairvoyant, but also was trained in a certain way to be able to understand the paranormal and was himself able to perceive some paranormal activity. I think one of the things that's interesting about Lorraine Warren in particular is the fact that unlike priests, her power does not come from ordination and it doesn't come from training. She's a natural, supernatural perceptor. And in some ways, she's a, she's a mystic. And there's a long history, in, especially in the Catholic Church, of mysticism offering an avenue towards the supernatural that is not contained by the institutional church. Mm-hmm. That is not based on education. It's not based on gender. It's not based on you know, ability to become ordained as a priest. But it's actually just a gift. Right. And so I think the story about the Warrens, in addition to being just very dynamic, you know, this this notion that you would have demons like jumping from one person to the other and it causes some it causes murder. I mean, it's it's very dramatic in and of itself. But I do think that there's a particular way in which the Warrens are appealing in a way that is beyond what we would normally consider to be the kind of clerical like stranglehold of exorcism related film, right? That they're just everyday people who just happen to be incredibly abnormal. So Katie, I want to bring you in. So your article, Catholic Gothic Horror and the Monsters in Our Myths, is the final article in the series and looks at Catholic Gothic horror and how two horror films produced outside of the United States have shined a light on abuses at Catholic institutions that in each instance had government support. So first, I'd like to ask you a technical question. What exactly is gothic horror and how does it connect to Catholicism within the genre of horror films? Gothic horror, I guess, would originally come out of the category of gothic literature, Mm. which would have been literature written mainly in the late 18th and early 19th century. So a lot of people would reference something like Frankenstein, right? Mm -hmm. And the gothic, the word gothic there actually comes from the name for a type of architecture from the Middle Ages. Hmm. So Gothic literature, which comes before Gothic horror films, really draws on kind of Gothic tropes that are closely associated with what people who are writing these novels imagined the Middle Ages to be, Mm, right? These are people writing after the Middle Ages, post-Middle Ages, post-Enlightenment. But when they're writing, they're bringing in these tropes like the the Middle Ages is a place where the supernatural is very present. The Middle Ages is a time that was especially brutal. Medieval architecture as architecture that was very claustrophobic, that didn't provide transparency, that, you know, there were underground tunnels, underground crypts. And this idea, you know, with Gothic literature, this idea that the Middle Ages and it's the sort of fearful kind of motifs of the Middle Ages, mm-hmm. the supernatural motifs, the sort of underground cryptic motifs are kind of mm, making their way into the present, right? Mm -hmm. So they're not, they're no longer tethered to the Middle Ages. They're no longer confined to the Middle Ages, but they're making their way into the present of that novel. Gothic tropes in film do the same thing. When you have the Gothic come in in horror films, you you might have big old decaying buildings with Mm -hmm. underground tunnels, and you might have ghosts, you might have haunting, you Mm -hmm. might have oftentimes, and this is where the Catholic comes in, because 
in the American imagination, and not only the American imagination, but the sort of Protestant European imagination, the Catholic is very tied to the Middle Ages, right? Mm -hmm. The Middle Mm -hmm. Ages are understood, were thought of as a uniquely brutal time, and also a uniquely Catholic time, right? Mm -hmm. And so in a lot of Gothic horror film, Catholicism comes in. And so the architecture, the buildings might be convents, right? Mm. Um, The buildings might be old monasteries. Um, You might have priests and nuns who seemingly are following rules that are from another era. And Mm. in, in horror films, that kind of medieval Gothicness intervenes in the modern present, right? And that's what makes it so scary. And so in, you know, in my essay, I gave the example, one of my favorite horror films is, is by George Romero. And he's best known as the filmmaker who did, did Night of the Living Dead. But his, in his mind, his best film that he ever made was this film, Martin, which is about a young man in Pittsburgh in the 70s who is a serial killer. And what's so great about that movie is that Romero, who is himself raised Catholic, brings in these kind of episodes where the Gothic kind of intervenes in 1970s Pittsburgh. Mm -hmm. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, the screen will flash from like this kind of steel mills of 1970s Pittsburgh to this black and white, you know, shots of these spiral staircases and these candelabras and, mm-hmm. and, and it raises questions for the audience. Oh, you know, Martin's violence, Martin's uh, murderousness. Is there something supernatural there, right? Mm-hmm. Is there something there that can't be quantified, that can't be explained in the sort of terms that we use to understand things in the 20th century? And so that's where the Gothic is, gets used. And that's where the Catholic Gothic in particular gets used in horror. Got it. Thank you. That's very helpful. So your article takes an interesting approach because you look at uh, two horror movies and use them as examples of how horror can offer important commentary on actual real-life atrocities. So can you tell us a bit about the films that you covered in your article, what real-life abuses were their inspiration, and why you see these horror movies as effective at bringing attention to actual Catholic horrors? Yeah, so I looked at two different films uh, for my essay. The first is by a female Irish horror director um, named Ashlyn Clark, and she made a film in 2018 called The Devil's Doorway. The Devil's Doorway, or set in what was called Magdalene Asylum. Um, Mm. Some people might be familiar with that as a Magdalene Laundry. They're the same thing. And these were historical institutions in Ireland uh, in the 20th century that housed and confined uh, women, right, who are understood to be sort of, quote unquote, socially unfit, maybe because they were sex workers, maybe because they were unwed mothers, maybe because um, they had emotional problems, different reasons, right? And these were real historical institutions in Ireland, right? They confined thousands of women, and these women did unpaid labor at these institutions. So Ashlyn Clark, who's a female Irish director, put together this movie Um, set in the Magdalene Asylum in the 60s, which would have been the time period where these were very prominent on the Irish landscape. And her movie involves uh, two priests who go to the asylum to investigate reports of a miracle, but are increasingly, as the movie progresses, drawn into this kind of very gothic house of horrors, where they end up underneath the asylum in these tunnels, in these crypts, and coming upon the, you know, the, the, the graves of dead children who were born in the asylum. And, mm. and eventually the, the priests themselves succumb to the 
what turn out to be demonic horrors um, mm. that are unleashed by the nuns who who run the asylum. It's 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 a pretty it's a pretty amazing movie. <laughs> and then the second movie uh, that I talked about is a movie by. Uh, Mi'kma, which is First Nations Canada, uh, writer-director, a guy named Jeff Barnaby. And he made a movie in 2013 called Rhymes for Young Ghouls. And Rhymes for Young Ghouls is about a uh, reserve, a First Nations reserve in Canada, and the residential school that kind of looms gothically over mm. the reserve. And it's less a horror movie and more, I say, is a, a residential revenge flick because the the, the protagonist in, in the movie um, is is taken captive in the residential school. She's she's a um, Mi'kmaq protagonist, and she's taken captive in the residential school, but manages to escape. And then she and her friends kind of come back and get revenge on the school. But it's also very gothic. They end up underneath in the, in chambers and tunnels and hmm. cells underground underneath the residential school. And um, so it draws on some of the same gothic tropes, even though it's a different kind of film. But also, again, then, of course, commentating on a very real life horror for First Nations people in Canada, which was the Canadian residential school system. Right. Thank you. So then for our last question, I'd like to ask what you think comparing Catholic horror to real life atrocities achieves. So for people who have never thought about pairing these things, what would you say is the main takeaway and where should we go from here with this information and these insights? Matthew? I think that for me, horror centers things, violence, atrocity, um, kind of awful things that we would rather not look directly at, right? Mm. Things that we wish, we we hope we never actually encounter mm-hmm. in our lives, but we kind of on some level know are happening constantly. Um, and so horror as a genre forces us to see those things, forces us to see them in a way in which like we can never unsee them. Um, and I think that that has a kind of strong connection to the way that a number of scholars um, today are approaching our own scholarship, where we're trying to kind of reveal, uncover, and center the ways in which actual violence, atrocity, um, have not been kind of peripheral or anomalous or unrelated to this thing we call Catholicism or this thing that we study called religion, but have actually kind of made it up on some level, like cannot be disentangled from the institutions and communities and people who are involved. For me, like good horror, you know, has an element of social critique and moral urgency. Hmm. Thanks, Jack. Any thoughts on main takeaways and where we should go from here with this information and insights? Thinking about what Matthew just said, I think there's, in my mind, there's there's a couple of different ways in which horror reveals things to us about ourselves. So on one on one hand, I think one of the fundamental things about especially Catholic horror, but supernatural horror, more broadly speaking, is this question about, uh, in my mind, is, is one of like the, the central nuggets of The Exorcist, which is to say that, um, like, what if angels and demons are real? What if there's a supernatural world beyond what we normally see that is ever present, that we interact with all the time? And what is the the hazard of not acknowledging that in everyday life. Hmm. Um, so there's certain types of, especially Catholic horror that I think ask that question, which is not necessarily tethered to this other angle into Catholic horror that I think we've, a conversation has been trending towards, which is this element of the way in which art actually reveals things about reality 
that are underarticulated or at least not explicitly articulated so much in everyday conscious mind. Hmm. I think there's a way in which what the latter way of thinking about Catholic horror like invites us to really question whether or not there are voices that come out of you know the what you could call the artistic community that should be considered as revealing some form of knowledge about historical reality that those of us who consider ourselves to be historians have kind of under acknowledged uh, when we think about what kinds of violence and what kind of like normalized violence um, has been fundamental to, to Catholic history in the United States. Mm, thank you. Katie, anything you'd like to add? Sure. Yeah. And this, I think this actually builds on, builds on what Jack was just saying. I think, and it also goes back to what I was saying about the Gothic, something that's so effective about horror, particularly Gothic horror, but horror in general is that it unsettles any comfortable separation between the past and the present. Right. Mm, mm -hmm. And I think that I'm thinking about the filmmakers who made the two films that I wrote about, and both of them come from communities that were, I mean, lots of different kinds of people make Catholic horror films, obviously, but the two filmmakers that I wrote about both come from communities that were immediately impacted by these Catholic institutions in the 20th century. Right. Mm -hmm. So Ashlyn Clark writes about, you know, she writes about, being an unwed mother at 17 in the 1990s. And, and that was the same decade that the Magdalene laundries closed, you know, hmm. and she spoken in interviews about how, you know, that could have been her that ended up in the laundries. And then she goes on to make this movie hmm. about these Magdalene asylum. And obviously Jeff Barnaby, similarly as a, growing up on a first nations reserve. And I think that, you know, when those filmmakers decided to use horror as a genre for exploring the legacy of these institutions that impacted their communities very profoundly, yeah. right? They found horror useful. And I think one of the reasons it's useful is because it unsettles the past and the present in that way, right? I mean, we throw around the language of intergenerational trauma a lot. You go to a horror movie and that scariness is not just in the past, right? Mm -hmm. That scariness cultivates a, a reaction in you watching it, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, on the part at least of the filmmakers that I've been thinking about, that's very intentional because it unsettles audiences. It forces audiences to confront historical problems in the immediacy of the now. And then to kind of to your question, you know, and, and sort of ask audiences, even if indirectly, okay, well, now what do you do with that? <laughs> right. Right. Well, thank you for that. Uh, you may have made me a convert into watching horror films after all. And thank you each for your insightful articles in this series and for this conversation. That is all the time we have for today. I'd like to thank our guests, Dr. Jack Lee Downey, Dr. Matthew Kressler, and Dr. Kathleen Holscher. You can find each of their articles in the Revealer's Catholic Horror Series at therevealer.org. I'm Brett Crutch. I hope you'll join us for our next episode next month. We'll be discussing the politics and problems of religious cultural appropriation from white Americans co-opting yoga practices to non-Muslims wearing the hijab to show allyship with Muslim women. In the meantime, I hope you stay safe and healthy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Revealer Podcast with music by Kevin McLeod and production editing by Cameron Anderson. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we'd love to hear from you. Email us at therevealerpodcast at gmail.com and check us out at therevealer.org. <laughs>